You're listening to an Economy Matters podcast produced by the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. The Federal Open Market Committee concluded a two-day meeting earlier today. The pace of job today. growth has been strong. Downside risks to the outlook for the, the economy. number of Fed officials. The shadow banking system is large. We've come a long way since the darkest day of the financial crisis. Welcome to another Economy Matters podcast. I'm Charles Davidson, staff writer for Economy Matters, the Atlanta Fed's digital magazine. I'm here today with Brian Bailey. Brian is a subject matter expert in commercial real estate in the Atlanta Fed's supervision, regulation, and credit division. Brian, thanks for your time today. It's great to be here, Charles. Thank you for having me. Yeah, sure thing. Well, and what Brian does, Brian is out amongst the folks in the commercial real estate industry, so he gets a real feel for the industry by talking to a lot of people. So he does a lot more than just pour over the numbers, though he certainly does that too. So, uh, well, Brian, let's jump into it here. With the economy on solid footing as it is, but uh, there are certainly some signs of concern out there. We still see a lot of construction cranes around Atlanta, certainly, and other uh, metro areas in the southeast. Is that something we should be concerned about? Well, you know, it's it's fun to be out and about the market and and you know hear them describe all of these cranes as, you know, the state bird of Florida or the state bird of Tennessee, you know, has returned. You know, obviously, you know, there is a lot of, of economic activity and it, and it and you can easily see it, you know, in a in a crane that towers over the skyline of, of you know, whether it's Nashville, Chicago, New York City, Dallas or Atlanta, Tampa, etc. So certainly, you know, we've received we've seen the return of, you know, the commercial real estate building. Now not being you know, done quite as robustly as we saw in the mid 2000s. So I think, you know, certainly there are some, you know, dynamics. You know, if you look at the size of the commercial real estate market, you know, ballpark, it's roughly about 3% of gross domestic product of, of the national economy. So certainly it's an important factor. It's probably, you know, 500 to $600 billion in economic activity per year. So it's pretty huge. It's huge. Absolutely. You look at some of the organizations that follow it, for instance, NARATE, you know, they've estimated based on CoStar data that there's somewhere between 14 to $17 trillion of commercial real estate assets. So certainly that's not a trivial matter. You know, I'd like just a little bit of a sliver if right, I could own sure. part of that. And, uh, and Brian, just to be clear, CoStar is a, basically a market research firm that, that really studies and analyzes absolutely. commercial real estate, right? Absolutely. Right, uh, so, I mean, you have a, you know, a, a significant piece of the overall economic engine of the U.S. in commercial real estate. You know, some of the trends that are affecting that right now Certainly, you know, population growth is huge. Job growth, no, you know, two of the main drivers in commercial real estate. You also combining that right now with, you know, very significant amounts of capital available, whether that's domestic-based capital or whether it's foreign-based capital. Right. And, you know, as you're well aware of, you know, there are a number of countries right now outside the U.S. with, you know, negative sovereign wealth debt, negative yielding sovereign wealth debt. Well, certainly, you know, our commercial real estate has benefited from that dynamic as people have have sought positive uh, returns. Right. The other thing we've got to look at, you know, is construction. You know, it's not as robust as it was in the mid-2000s, but certainly there is a element of timing. And, you know, every, you know, a lot of people have talked about the length of this economic expansion. Right. And it continues on, which is great. At the same point, we know that it takes for some of these towers 
if you have permits in place, two, maybe even upwards of three years to build. And that's a long time to absorb that risk of a potential shift in the marketplace. Right. So, when, But from the time you start a building, things may be great three years down the road. Things could change. Absolutely. If you started, you know, there were a number of folks who started, a number of firms who started buildings in 2006 and 2007. And, you know, that didn't end well when when they got to completion at 2008 or 2009, when the market was completely different. We saw that firsthand. I think the other thing we're seeing right now, you know, is is we we are, you know, 10 plus years removed from the, the, the downturn. And in that 10 years or so, more than 10 years, you know, we've seen significant evolution in technology. We've seen costs come down, and commercial real estate is a slow, late adopter uh, of technology. Right. But that technology has even begun to permeate the commercial real estate field. For instance, you see more telecommuting. You see more information available. And so people are able to make better decisions, better informed decisions on financing. You also have seen, you know, e-commerce. You know, obviously Amazon has grown significantly in those, you know, 10 or 15 years. We also see it in the use of commercial real estate space. And, you know, you think about the square feet per person right now, per, per FTE. So if you have... What's uh, FTA? Yeah, FTE is full-time FTE. equivalent. Okay. So, so a person who works so in So a person who's working basically. in an office environment. Okay. And so, you know, we've seen that amount of square feet per person, per office using worker, you know, come down and the trend continues downward today. That's because people are working at home more, working remotely more, and well, therefore they're not in the office So some much, of that or? is having an impact, but also, you know, you've seen occupancy costs rise. Mm-hmm. And so employers are trying to squeeze out, you know, the costs where you know and be as efficient as possible and so really from a densification standpoint you know more workers in the same or less square footage allows them to pay more for some of the prime real estate and we've seen construction costs go significantly upwards so yeah i mean you know you really have kind of a a, a trade off per se right. in that costs have gone up significantly employers you know have actively worked to manage their costs and so you know they've dialed down the amount of square footage per worker mhm well brown what what are there areas where we're seeing uh overbuilding perhaps, or concerns about potential overbuilding? Right. It's a good question. Obviously, we have built a significant amount of luxury apartments within the last decade. And and certainly, you know, this was probably the first recovery in the last five that wasn't led out of the downturn, as far as commercial real estate was concerned, by office, by office buildings. This one was led by the construction of multifamily. And so the multifamily developers came in, were able to secure the prime locations, were able to lock in their costs before they began to jump. And hence, we saw a wave of multifamily buildings. And, and really, you know, that carried across the economy, it would be, you know, across the nation, pardon me. First, it was in the gateway markets of Chicago and New York and San Francisco. But then we began to see, you know, that permeate down all the way to, you know, the Atlantas and the Tampas uh, and the Orlandos that were later in recovering than some of the gateway markets. Right. And so, you know, that wave of, 
uh, apartment building of luxury apartments, you know, has kind of been, uh, you know, we've seen it over a significant number of years. Now, it reached pretty significant levels in 2016 and 2017. And you did see in some of those markets on the upper end, you know, we became oversupplied. And so it began to take longer to lease up the buildings that were coming online. The landlords of buildings had to provide more concessions to get that done. And and so really we saw kind of a stagnation through 16, 17, and 18, really. It was kind of just a flat rental rental growth rate of, right. of 1% to 3%. Right. Um, you know, recently that's begun to tick upwards again. So I'm beginning to think that we're seeing some of that excess clear. But, you know, we look at another area to look at right now is industrial. You know, if you're an industrial developer, it really seems like nothing you do uh, can go wrong. Is that mean, be, that's largely driven by the growth of e-commerce? Is it that is. Right? These Abs- big, giant warehouses that are super efficient. And- there is a huge race right now to, you know, flesh out the capability of the last mile. And, and, and you know, certainly, you know, we'd be remiss in, in, in not, you know, using Amazon as an example. Mm-hmm. But you look at how— When you say last mile, Brian, you mean yeah. f- to someone's house, the getting last it mile to, to get getting it to, to their Getting it to their house. And, and so you've seen those facilities, you know, more from, you know, 40-foot clear heights. You know, Amazon's latest version is now at, at you know, a 75-foot clear height. That Be, means how high the How high is. it is. They're putting in, you know, you know second uh, and tiered storage. You know, they're accelerating the throughput of product through their buildings. And so really, you know, we're still changing how and still trying to figure out how to best optimize and be as efficient as possible with some of the last mile capabilities. Yeah. So so certainly, you know, it's fascinating to me to hear Amazon quote the statistic that they will have a distribution system that has one square foot for every American in their system by 2022. So you think about over 300 million square feet, you know, just a a staggering number. So Brian, earlier you mentioned the the vast pool of capital that's available right now to commercial real estate developers and builders. A good thing if you're a developer, I suspect, but um, are there any concerns there that they might get a little less, uh, less careful than they need to be? I don't believe in my career, I have never seen a time where there has been this much capital available. And, and certainly as a reformed developer, spent many years out in the private sector, you know, from that standpoint, you know, it's, it's, it's a very strong dynamic to get capital and make it available to the development community. At the, at the same point, you know, you have to watch it because historically, you know, when you have the combination of heightened values, too many lenders, too much capital or lots and lots of capital available, you know, you know, when you begin to combine those points and connect the dots, you know, historically that's not ended terribly well. And so certainly we have to be aware of the risk associated that, you know, with that right now. You know, when there is a lot of competition, when there's a lot of capital available, there tends to be a lot of competition. And we've seen it, you know, you, you have the banks You've also had the rise since the last downturn of the segment of non-bank lenders. So life insurance companies, have, you know, we're always lending, but they've certainly, you know, put a, an additional emphasis on commercial real estate. You've seen more pension money 
come into the space as there's been more uh, greater recognition of commercial real estate as an investment class. You've seen private equity money, hedge fund money, high net worth individuals, and and so really you know you've seen it. On top of that, you know we've become more efficient from a global perspective in you know capital flows, the flow of capital. So it's easier to move capital from Europe to America you know, easier to move it from America to Asia, you know, et cetera. And so what that's happened is, is that that has brought capital to areas where there were higher returns, where there was, you know, the perspective that the environment in in the case of the United States, you know, was a, a flight to safety, a more, a, a more safe environment, less volatility. And so we have seen a lot of that capital come in. It came in as equity in, you know, from, from you know, 2012 through even today. But, you know, really the equity component began to back off in 2016 and it focused more on debt. And so there is vast amounts of capital from the sources that I just talked about that's available for debt. Um, and, and certainly, you know, why have they kind of shifted away from equity and more toward debt? Some concern that we may be, la- you know, in the latter stages of this economic expansion. Certainly, there's been concern about heightened pricing levels, uh, you know, and, and so there are a number of, of dynamics. So, you know, I think from my point of view, yes, there are some areas of concern, you know, to, to single a couple out. Certainly right now, you know, you see CRE, CLO commercial real estate collateralized loan obligations. You know, and the the kind of the structure is, is that, you know, money goes from, you know, a bank or a pension fund to a lender, and that lender then makes commercial real estate loans and then repays the organization that they borrow the money from by securitizing those loans and and chopping them up of uh, selling those that investment grade paper or so non the, these entities are basically borrowing large sums of money and then relending it that's correct. essentially yeah. okay but they're securitizing it into investment grade or non investment grade you look at the underlying assets that 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 those loans are based on. Ron, what are, all these dynamics? A lot of capital out there. A lot of different funders. Let's say if that's the proper term, uh, financiers. Uh, different the hedge funds, uh, private equity funds, pension funds. Even I think earlier you mentioned sovereign wealth type funds from other uh, other countries that are basically sort of like national. Uh, government investment uh, pools. I'm getting into the commercial real estate game in the U.S. What does that mean for our commercial banks? You know, how does this affect them? Well, I think that certainly there has been in some segments of the lending world, you see greater competition. So, you know, in the non-bank space, my understanding is, is that, you know, very significant competition on loans less than $30 million dollars. We know that that is prime territory for a lot of the community banks to play in as well. And so certainly if you see greater competition, greater capital available, heightened values, potentially means that, that there is you know growing risks in that space. Because they're going to be able to accrue less interest on their loans, right? The more competition there well, is. It's funny you've mentioned that because you know, we get some of the greatest structuring data out of the CMBS space. And we've seen commercial mortgage-backed securities. securities, Thank you. You know, all of those loans and the structures are public 
public information. And we've seen an uptick in the use of interest-only structures and partial interest-only structures. So right now, in some instances, you take office space, 90% of the loans that are originated right now either use interest-only or partial interest-only structure. You think about that, you know, the, there is some crossover at some point, whether what, it's, what is, Brian, I want to stop for a second. So for those who don't, you know, aren't experts in this field, what, what does that really mean, interest-only structure compared to what? Well, uh, I mean, you think of, if you're just paying interest compared to an amortizing loan where you're paying interest and part of the principal, right. then from a lender's perspective, that's a less risky loan. So if you're using interest-only, it's better for the developer or owner because there is less cash out the door as far as you're not making a principal payment. So then, you know, your return essentially is is greater. At the same point, to the lender, there's more risk because you're not making any principal payments over the term of that loan if you're using an interest-only structure. Right, right. So what so for uh so for the banks then, does this start to become a concern or is it something we need to, as a regulator, to keep an eye on? Absolutely have to keep an eye on it. From, you know, standpoint of CMBS, you know, the loan to values have been, have been relatively modest, I mean, roughly about 60%, which is a, which is a decent level. At the same point, the non-banks and some of the banks, we've seen an uptick in those loan to values. So, so loan to value means if a building costs $100 million, if I lend you $100 million, that's a 100% loan to value. Right. Okay, got right. it. And, and we know that the probability of the loan running into trouble, there is a direct correlation between the higher that percentage is, the higher the loan to value, and the potential to for the bank to run into trouble with, with the loan itself. Right. So you think about you know what we saw back in the mid-2000s. We saw loans with higher loan values, loans that used interest-only structures, and those loans had a higher probability of creating challenges for the banks. So certainly, we're keeping a, a, pretty, a pretty close watch on that dynamic. I don't think it's uh, you know, pervasive across the, per, uh, uh, across the lending space right now. But certainly we're seeing more and more instances of that right now. And so, you know, we know that lenders who fared pretty well during the downturn, you know, kind of mod- were modest, moderated the amount of, you know, loans with higher LTVs with interest only, some of those other dynamics as well. I know you're not uh, Sigmund Freud here, but I did want to ask you a question about the psychology of all this. The farther removed we get from the Great Recession, memories tend to fade. Does that at some point become a concern, or do the the, the people who live through it do, do they you know do they still recall how just how tough that was, and so it's going to temper what they're what they may uh, you know just how adventurous they might be tempted to be, to get. I think you have a combination of that dynamic right now. So, you know, we're 10, 12 plus years removed from that. And so certainly, you know, some of that institutional knowledge, you know, has moved on and retired and we've brought up, you know, new talent in the industry, which, you know, wasn't, you know, d- impacted by the, by the Great Recession, at least from a, in, the, in the professional sector. We know, again, 
that loans with significant, you know, with higher LTVs that utilized interest-only structures didn't fare so well. The other thing we know that didn't fare well is when we begin to stretch on the amount of construction cost financing. So like you said, you know, if we go 90% or 100% of construction cost financing, we saw a greater proportion of those loans run into trouble. What's fascinating to me, and certainly I'm not Sigmund Freud, and you're taxing, you know, you're taxing my abilities right now, but it's fascinating to me that those loans, the loans that were 90 to 100% of construction costs, you know, a significant number of them ran into trouble and had, you know, very significant losses associated with them. And today in the marketplace, I have been hearing about and talked to people whose firms are now originating construction loans that are 90 to 100% of construction costs. Why do we need to be concerned? Well, if you think about the structure of a, a project that's under construction, you know, in a lot of ways at 90 plus percent, you know, the developer is actually able to pull money out of the project. So it kind of comes back into the underlying notion, you know, how much skin in the game do you have? And the less skin in the game you have, you know, the more propensity that the lender may experience some problems. Right, right. Well, Brian, thanks so much. Fascinating information. And uh, obviously, this is stuff we're going to continue to keep an eye on. Thank you for having me back, Charles. I had a wonderful time. Thank you. All right. And thanks for listening. And please come back to uh, frbatlanta.org for future Economy Matters podcasts. Next month, we'll have Mike Johnson on. Mike is the head of the bank's supervision, regulation, and credit division. And he's going to talk about developments in bank examinations and what that may mean for banks in the Southeast. Thank you for your time. This has been a production of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. For more podcasts on this topic and others, please visit the Atlanta Fed's website at frbatlanta.org.